from the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. The ongoing history of Michael Hainsworth. I pulled the plug on a 30-year mainstream media career. Uh, We'll find out what's next for Canada's now formerly most watched business news reporter. And I'll dish the dirt on a few behind-the-scenes stories, too. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. All right. Well, so I guess this is my day job now. Uh, I guess it is. Do you want to explain exactly what's been going on with you? <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, I pulled the plug on a 30-year mainstream media career. Just walked away from it all. That is either the dumbest or the bravest thing I've seen in a long time. It could very well be both. Uh, yes, that's true. Wifey think? Uh, wifey is very supportive of this. She's been very good about the whole idea. The way I've been trying to des- trying to describe it is, thirty years is a milestone. But you know what's not a milestone? Being pink slipped at thirty one years, at thirty two years. No, that that's absolutely true because. Uh, at that point, you are basically put out to pasture and you have to reinvent yourself in ways that are so difficult, if you can do it at all. And so my thought was, um, let's take some time, figure out what's next. You know, one of the, the things that, that people seem most surprised about was that it was 30 years in the first place. You know, like, how old are you anyway? I got into radio while in high school at 17, I would work overnights at what was then called CKFM 99.9, which, as you know, today is uh, uh, Virgin Radio. No, no, shoot. Uh, boom, boom, boom. No, no, it's 97.3. Uh, it is. Uh, well, wait, wait a minute. I'm the one who retired, not you. You should know these things still. Well, hang on. Hang on. So uh, 99.9. Virgin Radio. Virgin Radio. Yes. Yes. Which was ironic because I was at 17. I would uh, work overnights uh, pushing buttons because I was the operator. We've talked about this before. I was not the DJ. I was the op. And the op is... Uh, the person who makes sure that the needles keep running overnight while everybody goes home to sleep. Exactly. The DJ wasn't even there. He would come in at 2 in the afternoon, get the playlist, and say, Come on up next, Phil Collins. And then I'd be responsible for doing everything the DJ would normally do except the actual on-air microphone work, and I'd play back the tapes of his work. And then at 5.30, when the morning show started, I would leave. I would take the subway to high school, crash in the cafeteria around 6, 6.30 or so until 8, uh, and then I would go to class. And the problem with that lifestyle is it catches up to you. And at about 2 in the afternoon, I would fall asleep in, of all things, and ironic now, business class. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, I, I started when I was 18. I was in university. So we sort of have the same length of career. You got ahead. You got in there a little bit, uh, a little bit before me. Well, you're still in radio. I was in television. And my thought is that not only has radio gone through this massive shift thanks to the Internet, but television is, is dealing with that, too. And and I firmly believe that the future of television, or if you had asked me five, ten years ago about the future of television with the advent of Netflix and, and streaming and, and things like that, was that the only TV that would survive is TV that you couldn't record. So all of the your dramas, all of your comedies, uh, uh, all of that kind of stuff, that was all going to go streaming. The only TV that you could actually um, believe would exist in the future was one that was had no value in being recorded on a PVR, on a TiVo, and that was sports and business, because there's a, a play-by-play component to that, that if you miss the play-by-play, there's no point in rewinding and going back and watching it again. Right. And I've actually changed my mind since then. How so? Television, whether it be sports or, or, or business news, is linear in nature. And you know what that means. That means that when I start the show at 12 noon and say, welcome to the Big Shot Show, coming up over the next hour, we're going to talk about A, B, C, and a whole bunch of other things. Well, if A doesn't interest you, you have two choices. You can either sit through A or you can go away and maybe you don't come back for B because you got distracted. Right. Whereas digital television is a function of a, a Tinder-like swipe. If story A doesn't interest you, you just keep swiping until you hit a story that does interest you. And what makes that digital television that much more important and valuable to not only the advertiser, but to the creators of the content is that those people are actually actively interested in the content. They're actively consuming it. Whereas someone who is sitting through story A, waiting for story B, they're really not paying that much attention. They're really not that actively engaged in what it is you're doing. They're just waiting for you to get through something they're not interested in. And heaven help you as a television programmer, if stories A, B, and C do not interest that viewer, they may never come back to catch D, E, F, and G. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm here. I was just waiting for the next story. Exactly my point. You, you zone out because you're not interested. It becomes wallpaper, whereas in the digital world, it's a very different thing. And I think there's a tremendous demand for that. Uh, and with that in mind, what I'm going to be spending the foreseeable future on is figuring out how to do it, do it well, and how to apply it, not necessarily to a mainstream media organization. So you are entering the startup world. You'll have to spend more time watching Silicon Valley, obviously. Oh, I couldn't stand that show. I got through like one episode of it. Oh, come on. You've got to be kidding me. So what is my job exactly? Well, that's actually, uh, that's up to you. You can do whatever you want. Okay. See, that's sort of what I do now, though. But starting today, you can do it in a much more significant way. Enjoy your new office. What? This is my office? Sorry to interrupt. The photographer's here. Photographer? Uh, from Wired Magazine for the profile they're doing on you. 
Sorry, who are you? Your assistant. No, okay. No, 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 no. I'm not. All right. Well, you know, and, and you say the startup world, and, and that is definitely a, an option. But it's not the only one because Donald Trump proved what the corporate world has already creepingly started to come to understand. That is, is that in the corporate world, you no longer need the mainstream media to get your message out. Donald Trump proved it with Twitter, and sure, you know, he's got that critical mass of, what is it, 14 million followers or, or something like that. And the corporate world may not have that. Uh, but uh, I've done a remarkable amount of research over the last little while, and one of the most interesting stats that came up to me was that 84% of the Fortune 500 companies today have their own in-house video production operation. Isn't that interesting? I, I'm actually not surprised because my wife is doing some work for the government and she does some work with a bunch of agencies who have clients. And you're right. They all do seem to have some kind of internal thing going on. The thing is, is that they're pretty much all of them doing it wrong. Uh, they What they do is, is they hire either kids fresh out of school or what have you um, who have expertise in video production, expertise in writing. What they don't have expertise in is television video production, television writing. So the content is laborious. It's long. It, they don't know how to tell the story very well. Uh, a lot of the content is for lack of a better term, uh, just corporate masturbation. It's uh, not content for the consumer. It's content for the CEO to go, looks good to me, keep it up. Mm. Uh, and it, it, you look at the analytics of uh, a video view on any given major, even mainstream media operation, and the, you, you draw that graph and it falls through the floor uh, at about the 44-second mark because people will give you a chance to hook them and – People aren't being hooked and they're not being hooked because the people whose day job it is to hook you like television broadcasters, those aren't the people making that content. Now, th this is very true. I do an awful lot of corporate videos and it has many of these videos will have a great opener. They'll suck you in and then they get into corporate speak and then. I have to continue to read the whole thing, knowing very well that no one is going to be paying attention whatsoever. So not only am I I'm looking to, to leverage, you know, 30 years in mainstream media, knowing what was done right and what was done wrong. But I spent 20 years in financial news specifically. True. So there should be some portable skills there. But the thing is, is I, I, I didn't wake up one day at 17 and say, you know what I really want to be? I want to be Canada's most watched business reporter. Um, I sort of fell into that. Um, and, and actually, it's kind of funny because do you remember uh, back? Back in the olden days, Frank Magazine? Sure, yes. Absolutely. Used to buy it all the time. Frank Magazine was a satirical thing that came out once uh, every two weeks, I think, that basically poked fun at mainly politicians, but also media figures across Canada. It was considered that you were not, you had not made it in media unless Frank Magazine at some point had taken a shot at you. And sure enough, I ended up in Frank Magazine when I first got into financial news. I, I, and I, as a matter of fact, I, I was so amused by it that I had it uh, scanned back in the days before everybody had scanners, blown up, framed, and I had it hanging in my office for the longest time. You, you want me to read it for you? Yeah, do it. All right. 
Anxious to fill a business reporting position, Toronto's 680 News promoted all-night mouthpiece Michael Hainsworth to the job. His qualifications? Hainsworth spent two years reading wire copy to cab drivers, security guards, and unsuccessful suicides. <laughs> Delighted with the promotion, Hainsworth mentions to news manager John Hinnon that there's a tiny catch. He doesn't know a damn thing about business news. Quote, Don't worry, says Hinnon, whose affectionate nickname around the station is The Moron. You'll bring a bright, fresh new perspective to the job. Whatever happened to Frank Magazine? Oh, yes, I remember those days. Yeah, they've got an internet presence now, and they've, they've uh, risen from the dead a couple of times all already. Right, hang on, hang on, looking it up. Looking it up. Well, they're all over a whole bunch of media-related things these days, uh, I'm sure you can appreciate. But uh, the, the thing was, was I was mortified at the time, and I went immediately into John Hinden's office and said, listen, I only told two guys that story that you had said, you'll bring a bright, fresh perspective to the job. One of them was a guy who I trusted implicitly, and the other one was the sports guy. And the sports guy was big fans with the newsroom crank. Uh-huh. And we're pretty confident that it was the newsroom crank who had uh, tipped off Frank Magazine. The problem with the newsroom crank was that he was trying to get himself a TV career in the sports world, and he was doing it through one of the local stations that was doing, you know, OHL hockey, Ontario Hockey League stuff. Uh, and so I believe, and I've got no proof of it, but I believe the boss called him up and said, you know that guy who's doing play-by-play in color for you? Yeah, I don't want him doing that anymore. So that was also a real interesting lesson about the power of management in a mega media corporation to pick up the phone and call somebody else out and get their gig canceled on them. Yeah. So I suppose that the big question was I got mostly was, was why are you pulling the plug on mainstream media? Uh, why are you pulling the plug on mainstream media? It's an industry that that's really in a race to the bottom. You know, and the funny thing is, is that this is my 30th anniversary, but that race to the bottom began, I would say, probably about 10 years earlier. The, the problem started when the bean counters got their claws into the industry. As you know, um, the, the real success in media comes from those who are interested in making media being in charge. And in the, the late 70s or so, um, the corporate world saw the cash flow that was coming out of traditional broadcasters. And, and as you know, back then, there were like only really three in the United States. There are really only three here today in Canada. And so they saw dollar signs in their eyes over the cash flow. Like, why does General Electric own NBC? What's a company that makes light bulbs doing owning a media property? They weren't interested in making good TV. They were interested in the cash flow that come, came from it. And so I've spent so much time talking to, to, to people in the business from all sorts of different major media shops. And they're all owned by a, an organization bigger than them that has absolutely nothing to do with the news, absolutely nothing to do with making music on the radio. And the, the stories are all the same right across the board. All of the profit that goes into any media organization gets kicked upstairs to the parent company who then doles out the cash. And when ratings decline, well, the axe starts swinging and you've got people who have no idea that you can't cut your way to rating success making those decisions. So you, you get an industry where it's hard to turn around a large media organization and build things up when you've got people who are making decisions based 
solely on the money saying, well, you've seen the 10 percent decline in ratings. That's an X percent decline in your budget. Right. Like you suffered through it, I'm sure. I, I did. I did. I know I have. And, and I don't work as an employee for a major media company anymore. They are my largest client. So I am free to do other things. Uh, I'm free to pay my own benefits. I am free to collect my own money. I am free to do you know all the things that go along with being a small business. But at least um, I have the freedom to do whatever I want to do. The, the idea that there's so much more to media. Media in and to itself is not dead. The business model is dead. But there was a Harvard professor who had a great line. He said that the hardest place to disrupt a business model is within the business model. So let's step out from the business model and talk about what it's going to take to build a new business model and how that looks. And you can't turn around a large media organization. These are these are massive oil tankers in the Gulf. They can't turn on a dime the way a speedboat can. And, and to your suggestion about the startup world, the startup world is all about being nimble. And there's a certain uh, value in that. But I, I also think that the corporate world needs a lot of help, too. Well, it does. The corporate world, especially in mature businesses, they are concerned just with keeping the lights on. They just want to be able to make it through the day. There isn't a lot of time for strategizing or thinking or coming up with radical thoughts that may prolong the business uh, by propelling it in a different direction. This is why people from the outside are so necessary because they can reimagine things without having to worry about, oh my God, how do I just get my day's work done? And and that's sort of what I'm doing and sounds like what you want to be able to do for, for other people. I, I've taken meetings with some very large organizations over the course of the last little while. Um, and the consistent thing I've heard is, well, we've already got the ball rolling on A. You're suggesting B. And my response to it is, you got to go with the guy who knows. You really do. And th that that's one of the hardest sell jobs that I've got right now is convincing any of these organizations that I've been talking to and that have been talking to me is, is that, um, yeah, I know you've burned a lot of time and energy on this. But if you can trust me and take it this way, that's the path to success. And, you know, I looked at one large organization who had an interest in, in working with me and I saw what they were already doing. They were doing some things right. You know, the videos weren't 12 minutes long. There were two because we know the attention span is short, but everything was ultimately an advertisement. And what I've been trying to explain is Within seven years, by 2025, three out of four Canadians in the workforce will be the millennial generation. And their bullshit meters are highly tuned. They know exactly when they're being advertised to. So you have to be very, very subtle with your message. You have to it has to be storytelling and it has to be buried advertorial at most. And even that, I think, is risky. I think what you need to do with that generation is say, we are providing you with something that's of value to you. And once you do that, once you tell that generation that um, we are not here to sell you something, we are here to help you then they will naturally gravitate towards you specifically. But the funny thing is, is there's this myth about the millennial, that the millennial is flat broke. You know, the housing markets in Toronto and Vancouver,
that they can't afford to buy a house. They'll never be able to afford to buy a house. The median income of a millennial today, and mediums are very different from average. This is literally down the middle, is $36,000 a year. But the number of millennials described as somebody, say, 26 to 34, that demographic is making a lot of money. There's a portion of it that is. But the portion that's making more than $100,000 a year has doubled in the last decade. It's remarkable how much money is available to this demographic, particularly in the financial world. This is particularly appealing because these are people, this is an industry that's trying to figure out how to grab those kids. Because as they say, three out of four people walking around uh, on their way to work at nine o'clock in the morning will be that generation. And if you do not talk to them now, like they're grownups, they're not going to be interested in you down the road. No, absolutely not. Not at all. Do you have a favorite radio story? I've got plenty of them, but what's yours? This is all about you today. Ah, okay. Baby, if you've ever wondered... Wondered whatever became of me I'm living on the air in Cincinnati Cincinnati WKRP Got kind of tired of packing and unpacking Town to town, up and down the dial Maybe you and me were never meant to be Just maybe think of me once in a while I think in part, part of the reason why both of us got into radio in the first place was WKRP in Cincinnati. Yep. I wanted to be Johnny Fever when I first got into radio. As I say, as a dust in the wind kind of thing, I found myself in news and then I found myself in in business news. Uh, But uh, I never saw myself as Les Nesman uh, until my first on-air job. And it was in small town radio. It was Owen Sound, Ontario, CFOS 560. uh, And I was the morning news guy. This is First Radio News at 8. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Good morning. In Owen Sound, it's 10 Celsius with a wet but mild Sunday. Your detailed weather forecast follows the news. And it was my job to not only do the news, but do sports and weather as well. Now, of those three items, I'm sure you can tell which one is my weakest. (laughs) Be the sports. Absolutely. So you also know that when you're reading the news or when you're doing anything on the radio, there is a percentage of your brain, you know, a certain amount of CPU cycles that you can dedicate to different or other things. So as I'm reading the news, I know that in my sports cast a little bit later on, I've got a story about Chichi Rodriguez. Oh, Okay, I know where this is going, but continue. For those who don't know, Chichi Rodriguez, back in the 70s and into the 80s, was a very successful golfer. Turning to sports. (laughs) Winner of this week's Gulf Coast Golf Classic was Chai Chai Rodriguez. (laughs) Chai Chai finished with a nine under par score. Chichi Rodriguez. Mr. Rodriguez will play up the Turning to the commodities. Part of the reason why I included him in my sports reports in the 90s was that WKRP episode. I thought that was funny. So as I'm reading the news, every time I turn the page to the next news story, I would have that Chichi Rodriguez bit going through my head. And I turn the page again, and it would go through my head one more time. And I turn the page again. 
and it would go through my head a third time. And by the time I got to the sports report, I couldn't remember whether it was Chichi Rodriguez or Chai Chai Rodriguez. Yes. So you're a smart man, mathematically speaking. <laughs> what is the percentage chance of me getting it right? Well, normally it would be 50-50, but by the time you got to that story... Zero percent. <laughs> because I got halfway through, through calling him Chai that I went, oh, I don't think that's right. So I called him Chai Chi Rodriguez. <laughs> and the DJ reading the newspaper on the other side of the glass looked up from his newspaper like I was an idiot. I, my wife, worked with somebody who had the same kind of problem with sports figures. And at one point, there was a pitcher, a major league pitcher named Joaquin Andujar. And she did not read her copy through and hit Joaquin Andujar cold. So she's reading along, and it comes out, wahi-hoo-har. Oh, man. Yeah. And you don't live that kind of stuff down. I, w I was chai-chi for like the entire time I worked there. <laughs> My favorite television story, though, actually isn't a very specific story as much as it's that um, I prided myself on being a rock. You could not make me laugh on air. And I made the foolish mistake of telling people that. Oh, <laughs> challenge accepted. Precisely. Mike Christensen who to this day is in the television business. I believe he's at Dome Productions now. He's, he's doing all that kind of uh, sports stuff. He was my floor director. And so in television land, the floor director's job, as you can imagine, is to direct what's going on out there in the studio. Make sure the anchor's on top of things and knows what camera to look at, uh, does the countdown to going back on air, brings guests in, sits them down, mics them up, that kind of thing. That job, by the way, doesn't exist anymore. That was one of those jobs that the bean counters went, well, we got robotic cameras now what do we need a guy on the floor for oh really okay great so setting that aside mike took up the challenge mike by the way was also the one who gave me the in-house uh, nickname of tv's michael hainsworth <laughs> so uh, the going away card was to tv's michael hainsworth and that that just tickled me i thought that was kind of funny so he's standing off camera so i'm reading the teleprompter and i can see him out of the corner of my eye and he's trying to make me laugh and it's, it's not working. Nothing he can do makes me laugh. And the, the, the one thing he did that got the closest to me actually busting out laughing on air, he literally, while I'm in the middle of perhaps the most somber, serious financial news story, lifts up his shirt <laughs> and starts playing with his nipples. <laughs> we'll be back right after this. Oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. My biggest embarrassing one was I interviewed the CEO of a uh, Montreal-based company. And usually what I do is when I know that they're based out of, out of Quebec is I say hello to them in French and then quickly switch to English, more as a courtesy than anything else. And so we were taping this conversation. It was not live. Thank bloody God. Because when I asked him his, my first question in English, he answered it in French. And I stopped him mid-sentence because I'm like, oh, no, he thinks we're doing this in French because I said hello in French. I stopped him mid-sentence. Uh, Excusez-moi, pardonnez-moi, uh, en anglais, s'il vous plaît. And uh, he stopped and then just re-answered the question again in English because he was speaking English. 
and his accent was so thick, I thought he was speaking French. Oh, God. But thank God it was taped, and he was gracious enough to stop and just do it all over again in the hopes that I would come to the realization what an idiot I was. <laughs> okay, 30 years, you're going to amass a lot of these stories, a lot of these experiences. Are you going to, uh, going to miss him? You know what? Of course, I'm going to miss it. I had to spend a, a lot of time actually trying to wrap my head around it because I knew the 30th anniversary was coming up. I knew this was a good point to put a pin in that career and move on to what would be the next 25 years or, or so. Um, so I wanted to get a sense as to how you deal with not being the guy on TV anymore. See, I, I called up, of all people, uh, former CTV Toronto reporter Desmond Brown. You know why? Because I see his real estate signs everywhere. Right. Okay. And? And I'm like, Desmond, you left a successful career as a television guy to sell real estate. Do you miss it? And his response was very helpful. He said, of course I miss it. Whenever there's something big, I miss not being the guy there. But you know what I don't miss is being the guy there and not making it to my kid's hockey game. Yeah. Not being there for my child growing up and uh, the combination of him saying that and acknowledging that, of course, you miss it. And there's nothing wrong with missing it. It's OK to miss it was the, the confidence I needed to, to, to hear that I'm sure going to miss it, but that's OK and, and that I shouldn't beat myself up for it. Well, that does make sense, because what you're going to have to do is real allocate your priorities. And, and, and rejig your entire lifestyle because now you're not going to be reading the newspaper in the same way. You won't be watching the news in the same way. You won't be surfing the Internet in the same way. You can figure out new ways of using your brain power. And it, it will take some time. There used to be a time when wifey and I would watch the 11 o'clock news. It's been forever since we've done that. And that just in unto itself is an indication of the state of that industry, mm -hmm. that even the people who make it aren't watching it anymore. But I was the last guy you wanted to watch the news with because I would be screaming at the TV screen every time there was something that I saw as a mistake because you understand this as well as I do. Radio, television, media, it is a craft and it is something that you hone every single day no matter how good you are you can always get better and i want that for what's next for me regardless as to what it is and you don't know yet i really don't uh, as i say I, i've i've got a bunch of irons in the fire but as i said to my wife and, and daughter my job now is to stoke those fires to put more ingot into the flames and see which of those irons is hot enough to take out and, and strike. And there's been a tremendous amount of interest, and that's I'm very blessed for that. And so there are just discussions that are going to be taking place because one other thing that I've learned about this, and, and my wife helped me with that when she left radio after 24 years, thanks to a pink slip so Rogers can afford the NHL, which, of course, as we know, they've already screwed up. She went into um, the, the, the government world, uh, Queen's Park, um, and, and it's, of course, a slow moving machine, but so is the corporate world. The, the deadlines in media that are on an hourly basis, on a minute by minute basis, don't exist pretty much anywhere else. Oh, like, they don't. They don't. Um, I'm going to tell you a story that, that I know a guy that I work with for years in radio. He was out of work for some time. He has a job with TELUS right now, and he says he is uh, spending 
uh, 20, he's doing 25% of the work that he used to over the same period of time. And it's not like he's working any less. It's just that he was, he was expected to do so much with so little, with so much pressure in what he was doing before. Well, that's what wifey experienced with Queen's Park as well. If she is working at even half speed, it is still four times faster than what her colleagues are accustomed to. She'll get a phone call saying, hi, I need this thing. And 20 minutes later, she'll have it. And they'll go, oh, I wasn't expecting that for four days. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So when I've talked to uh, these various uh, irons in the fire, as it were, um, there uh, one of them, for example, said, oh, this sounds really good with what you're talking to us about. Uh, you know, it's something that we like to do in about a year. And I, I'm ready to go now. I, and I could do for them in a month that they think is going to take a year to get off the ground. And they just don't know it yet. There was a company that asked me to do some stuff. Uh, and, uh, it was some podcasts and they said, we need six 30 minute podcasts. We can't possibly do it because we know that it would take, oh, it would take six months and $250,000 to do this. To which point I laughed. You want to, you want six 30 minute podcasts? I'll have it for you tomorrow morning. Exactly. I was talking to to an organization that had its own in-house video production operation already, a multi-million dollar setup, a dozen people working in the shop, and they were thrilled that they were pumping out one video a day. (laughs) Please. And I'm like, you give me those resources and we can do so much more than one video a day. Um, but there's there's a corporate inertia that's at play um, that um, may or may not appeal to me, depending on on that work life balance component to it and, and what I, I can and cannot do. Because I've got some really big ideas about how to build a, a 21st century media operation. So the, the, the startup thing does appeal to me because um, you are running at your own speed. Whatever you want that speed to be, that's the speed of that organization. Uh, The other thing that tremendously appeals to me, and you can appreciate this, after 30 years in mainstream media, after 30 years of being hauled into the boss's office because they didn't like what I said, um, I want to be the boss. Yeah, that's the joy of being a uh, owner-operator of a business. I've been doing this uh, for, well, I've done it, I I did it for most of the 90s, and then I've been doing it since uh, 20, 12. And it's an interesting way to, to make a living because you are in charge of everything. It requires a cr- tremendous amount of discipline. You have to chase a lot of money. You have to chase a lot of business. But in the end, it is you. And that's kind of satisfying. The discipline is the biggest issue for me. Like uh, There was an article that the Toronto Star had written, uh, I think it was 2012. And the headline was, Hainsworth found marriage good for his finances. I, I've had my telephone line cut off. Not because I couldn't afford to pay it, but because I didn't get around to paying it. And so when I got married and my wife saw that I didn't have this discipline, she took over the day-to-day finances. She likes to say, I'm day-to-day, you're old and gray. So I handle the retirement-oriented financial decisions, which makes sense considering what I've been doing for the last 20 years or so. But I have since had to develop a discipline that didn't exist prior to that. So by example, I'm still getting up at the same time every day, even though I don't have a job to go to. 
I'm getting dressed at the same time. I get to walk my daughter to school instead of having to see her off and, 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 and go off to work. And then when I drop her off, I walk right back to the house. I get right back into the office and I focus on the task at hand, which is building what's next. And I recognize that I need that discipline to be able to do that. That's exactly what I do. I get up at the same time. I have my routine in the morning. I am at my desk by exactly the same time. I work until lunch. I take a specific amount of time for lunch. I work through the afternoon. And then I try to end my day at a normal time. Uh, you have to do that. And I, and I get dressed like I'm going to work. I don't need a suit and tie like you, but I, I, you have to have, you have to create that mental delineation between, uh, personal and professional, even though you don't leave the house. Silly little thing. Um, when I left BNN a years ago, a PR firm delivered a dozen plastic pigeons to the shop as part of some sort of campaign they were doing. And, and it, I think it tells you how successful it was. I can't even remember what the campaign was about, uh, but I gathered up as many of these plastic pigeons as I could, and I hid them in the rafters and cableways throughout the newsroom and on the set. <laughs> some asshole like went around and took them all down, except he missed one. And to this day, there is a plastic pigeon hiding on the BNN set. His name is Fred. Somewhere, and only you know where it is. Uh, no, 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 only me and about three or four of the tech guys. And those tech guys are going to be more than happy to keep that hidden right there, staring down at everybody. Oh, very good. Well, uh, let's let's wish you well in your future endeavors. And since you'll be here every week, you'll be telling us, uh, updating us on your on your progress. Well, I don't think anybody gives a rat's ass about my progress. I, I don't know. I, I'm even amazed that anybody's still listening, you know, 30 minutes into this episode about any of this. Because, as you know, we, we, we were taught that, we, well, more in news, I suppose, than in your line of work, that you are not the story. Do not insert yourself into the story. Nobody cares about you. It's not about you. So the, a 30-minute podcast about me is just something that rubs me the wrong way because it goes against everything I was taught. This is true, but in the Instagram world, people want to know what's going on behind the scenes. So let's let's just see. We'll look at the analytics after this is all over uh, and figure out exact, exactly if people cared or not. Well, I'll tell you, on the topic of people caring or not, I, I went to my going away party and I was certain that my BNN colleagues simply tolerated my elaborate stories, my silly jokes, my emphatic guidance, because again, it's a craft and you, and you want to pass that craft on to the next generation. Uh, and so I did that. I just considered it part of the job because that's what the elders in every newsroom I ever worked in did for me. I learned what I know today because of them. And so it just felt natural that you would pass that on as well. And so I just assumed that they were, you know, hear what I had to say, turn around, roll their eyes and move on. Uh, but at this going away party, to be called a mentor by so many of my colleagues meant so much more than I, I can ever express. Yes, you've passed along much wisdom to this, to the next generation with skulls full of mush. 
Well, that in into itself is, is part of the problem with the industry broadly, back to the fact that I know people in every major media organization across the country, and I, I know them across the country, and they all say the same thing, and that is that um, the, the bean counters have cut out the institutional knowledge in the middle of their newsroom. Uh, the people who are making a fair, respectable amount of money, um, not the people at the top, not, not the on-air types, um, but the, the people behind the scenes who make it all happen, the, the researchers, the segment producers, um, and the kids who, who, you know, whose job is to get coffees and mic guests up on set, they're the ones who get promoted from within. And the problem is, is that while in the old days that was, that was just fine, there was that group in the middle who could teach them the craft. Um, everyone's so busy in the industry now that those at the top are way too busy to teach the kids how the business works. And there's nobody in the middle to help them either. So there's this, this void in media. And it's not just a Canadian phenomenon. It's, it's friends I know in the States who are telling me this from major cable networks all the way down, that the, the kids aren't getting the education they need, certainly not from the schools, and they're not getting it on the job either anymore. That, that's very true because you have that big, vast gap in the middle between newbies and vice presidents, and I know what you're talking about. So it's a brave new world. I'm looking forward to, to what's next, and, and I think what's next ultimately for me requires me to be in the room making the decisions or being part of the decision-making process, uh, and that I'm building something. Because I, I describe my, my uh, sensibility as a career, a, a serial monogamist when it comes to my career. I spent six years at 680 News alone of my 11-year radio career and 17 at BNN uh, in CTV News, I want to build something from the ground up. And I want to be able to step back, not a year later, not two years later, but five years later, 10 years later, and say, that's what I built. And I, I, you got to be the guy in charge to be able to make that claim. No, that's true. It's absolutely true. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We want to say thanks to Rob Eklund, our latest member of the world's worst intern program. What did he do? He donated a dollar an episode, which is what, of course, makes it the world's worst intern program. You pay us to work on the show. You don't get any real work done. And much like I was just complaining about the hollowing out of the center of newsrooms in North America, um, we don't actually talk to Rob at all other than through this particular means. Same thing with Antoinette Van... Ooh, wow. I hear, here, here's a name I hit cold. Antoinette Vanden Dickenberg. Two Ks. Uh, she pledged two dollars an episode, uh, so thank you very much, Antoinette, for that as well. Uh, Aaron Kathleen Burrell, uh, one dollar an episode too, and uh, no lifetime limit on this on Patreon.com. So that means that we'll just keep digging you every time we put out a new episode uh, until Kingdom Come, unless you put it a lifetime limit, which you can. And we uh, appreciate, regardless as to which route you go, uh, opening your wallet wide and helping out the big show because we just plow it all right back into it. Yeah, we do, and we can certainly use as much money as possible because I did see the uh, the payday from this past week. We divide it in three ways, you, me, and uh, Vanessa, the producer. Um, yeah, we could use some more help. Yeah, technically four ways because the fourth goes right back into the show as well. Oh, right, because we have all the expenses that go. Yeah, that's right. And, and I had said to, to Vanessa when we hired her, I said, listen, you know, best case scenario, this is going to be enough for you to take your hubby out for dinner once a month. Yes. Got a question about music, love, that suspicious rash? Ask Alan anything. 
call 323-319-NERD. Uh, we've uh, got uh, intern Roland Wood via Patreon asking this question about uh, one of our recent episodes where we talked to Vest. Remember those guys? Oh, yes. Right. So that was a good one. Yeah. Where um, you could actually buy a piece of a song and benefit from the royalties that come in, much like a, a stock certificate, I, I suppose. And that was kind of the metaphor that we were going with, that you're buying shares of the, the song. So he was asking, saying, I was just curious if you asked about the liability side. If I bought 5% of a song and they got sued for copyright infringement, would I be liable for the settlement? Oh, what a very good oh! I, I oh yes, <laughs> yeah. There, there's where was Roland when we were talking about that in the office meeting back there in the newsroom? No kidding. Yeah. Um, so Roland, um, I'm going to tell you. I believe the answer is you do not uh, get uh, sued for copyright infringement because you're technically not a five percent owner of the song. You are a five percent owner of the royalty stream, right? Of the right. song. So that eliminates the liability component from the picture for you. Okay, makes sense to me now. He says, love the podcast and a top-notch VO, which tells me he's been listening to Andrea Ruse. <laughs> yes, yes. Andrea, <laughs> our voiceover artist and in-studio announcer, she is also the voice of the Toronto Transit Commission. I've noticed that. Yeah, so if you're on the TTC in Toronto and you're listening to the please stand clear the doors type stuff, that's all her. Yeah. Hey, by the way, you're just back from Singapore. I am. How, how, was, your, how was your top secret marriage saving mission that you went on? It went very well and I came home with an offer of being a godparent to the uh, the new Sprog. So my wife and I are going to be uh, heading back there at some point this year to uh, accept this particular honor. Now, considering you would be godparents halfway around the world, um, how what kind of legal authority do you have on any of this? I don't know, which is <laughs> why we're going to have to go back. So it sounds like it was a success, hey, even though you were traveling with a woman who was not your wife. Not, not my wife, that's right. Um, and everybody on both sides were very cool about it. Uh, my wife, her husband, we had a great time. Mostly because you're oblivious if someone came on to you anyway. And she's asexual, so it's not a problem. <laughs> Did you just out her as asexual? Is she going to be okay? No, I just, no she's, just, she's just not interested. That's oh, no, so, no, okay, so she's not asexual. She's asexual towards you. Yes, absolutely. Which is like the story of my high school career. <laughs> story of my life. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.